We're learning the second book of the Tanya. It's the book of unity. And what it's all about is uncovering really the depth of God's oneness. We get to the essence of reality, the essence of God himself, and we learn a new perspective on what it means, Hashem Echad, that God is one. And over the last couple of classes, the way I framed the structure of this book is that the Alter Rebbe wants us to gain perspective on how everything outside of God is truly one with Him. So we begin with God and the world, because that's the most tangible and obvious outside reality. And the Alter Rebbe teaches us by virtue of many illustrations and metaphors that really we're all one with Hashem. And then the Alter Rebbe goes more subtle, more refined, even things that are spiritual, like God's expressions, God's character, these are also completely one with Him. Tonight, I want to use a little different words to bring out the same point. I want to say it this way. If the beginning, or let's say the first half of book two is about God vis-a-vis creation, the second half of book two of the Tanya is about God vis-a-vis Himself. And what the Alter Rebbe wants us to know is that while it seems like there are so many parts of Hashem's character, especially as it's framed in the Torah, because the Torah gives all these descriptions for God, what wise, kind, jealous, judging, fair, joyful, all kinds of things, and it seems like there are many elements, the truth is that Hashem is what the Alter Rebbe calls achdut hapshuta, a single, plain, non-composite unity. The way the Zohar expresses it is, in Aramaic words, Ihu v'chayohichad, Ihu v'garmohichad. God and his animating faculties are one. God and all of his tools are one. There's a whole essay in Book 4 of the Tanya. Book 4 of the Tanya is the altar of his letters. They're not a cohesive um, chapter-by-chapter type of a thing. They're just a gathering of 32 letters that were discovered after his passing and um, put into one section of the Tanya so they could preserve all the handwritten works of the Alter Rebbe. And the longest essay, Essay 20, is uh, based on this piece of Zohar. God and everything about him are one. Now, this is obviously very tough to understand because the second you identify elements that are discernible as individual, by definition, they're separate. In other words, if you can label something as a character trait, This is your wisdom. This is your kindness. This is your judgmentalism. This is your endurance. This is your resilience. The second you're labeling traits, you're automatically saying or identifying separate entities. So it's kind of an oxymoron or or a catch-22 to say that Hashem and his, what's called in Kabbalah, his sfirot, his, his lights, his expressions, that they're all one. Because sfirot, by definition, mean separation, different attributes, different emotions, different expressions. So how do we explain that God within himself is completely one? And it's especially, the whole the question obviously is accentuated when you consider the chasm between God and any form of character trait. We talked a little bit last week, at length, at length last week, about how the definition of Hashem requires that he be completely divorced from any sort of descriptive terms. 
Hashem by virtue of being God. He was created from himself. He pre-exists, precedes time and logic and all of these things dictate that he cannot have any form or any um, compositeness. So that just makes the question bigger. How, would it, how is it that Hashem could be one, completely one, with his character? And the truth is that for that exact reason, for that exact reason, the Alter Rebbe concludes chapter 9 by saying that um, the truth is that the mechanism of the unity cannot be, cannot be grasped. We can't understand it. Human intellect can't fathom how it works. It's even why in Kabbalah, sometimes these sfirot are referred to as the secret of faith, because ultimately it requires faith to believe in how they work in tandem, how they work in tandem with God. Nevertheless, even though it ends or it comes down to belief that they are one and we don't know how it works, the Alter Rebbe begins chapter 10 by saying, and that's tonight's chapter, that Torah has a pattern of speaking in terms that the student, he or she, can understand. It's a Talmudic term that's called Dibra Torah Kelashon B'nai Adam. Torah expresses itself in human terminology, which in the macro means every concept in Torah can be illustrated somewhat by a metaphor relatable in human terms. So even if it's a weak metaphor, even if it doesn't match in all the details, there has to be a way that we can hold on to or get a handle in some way on any part of Kabbalistic wisdom, any part of Torah literature. Including this one. If we talk about God and his character traits and we say they're all one and we say it's impossible to understand how it works, there has to be something, some form that we can use to communicate the idea in a way that we can understand it. And the Alter Rebbe says in this case as well, the Chachmei Ha'emet, the sages of truth, it's the way of referring to the Kabbalists, uh, did give us a window into the relationship between God and his character traits. And that is by the fact that they called God's expressions or light. There's many words in Hebrew to define an expression. You have midot, sfirot, hashpaot. These are all Hebrew words that communicate the idea of someone or a being which gives of himself. Yet, the Kabbalists always chose the term or, light. That's how they communicated how God expresses himself. And the Alter Rebbe says, by examining the properties of light, you get an insight into this God-character relationship. Let's take a look at how light works, and it'll be weak, but we'll get some parallel to, um, to understanding the mechanism of Hashem and His attributes. In Hasidus, whenever we talk about light, the model is always the sun. We always use the sun as the model. I, I think it's just practical. Until the invention of the light bulb, there was no other 
example where you had a source of light and light that you can you know, look at how they relate. I think now it's much more easier to look at a light bulb and see the same thing or a lamp or any source, a flashlight. You know, all the same ideas can be learned. But if you think about it, really, the 1700s and the 1600s, that was what there was in terms of a luminary. So uh, that's why you, it, it's full of, in, the, in Kabbalistic works and Hasidic works, it's always the Shemesh, the sun, and the Or HaShemesh, the light of the sun. Because uh, that's just the easiest way to communicate light. So the Alter Rebbe says like this. Sunlight, and when I say sunlight, it's just code for any light. I'm just going to use that because that's the, that's the text of the Tanya. Sunlight, as we experience it, is, um, is a separate entity from the sun, from the globe of the sun, the ball of the sun. But it's only separate because we experience it in a space that's not the sun. In other words, we're here on earth. We can see the sun is there. So when the sun sheds its light on us, we experience the light as a, separate, or as a, as a unique entity. But if we can trace the sunlight back to its source, if we could follow the path of the sunlight all the way into the ball of the sun, we would observe that in the sun, or relative to the sun, from the sun's perspective, the light has no entity unto itself. When you're in the sun, you don't see sunlight. You just see sun. And again, it's the same for anything. So light bulb, if you can trace the light back to the bulb, in the bulb, you just see bulb, not the light. The light ceases to be independent when it reaches its source. The Alter uses the words, it's totally united with the sun. Etzem echad mamash. And the Tanya commentators explain he, that he stresses that totally because it's a property unique to light, this total unity. We have in the world many phenomena where one thing is subsumed within another, but it doesn't lose its identity totally. So certainly if we're talking about physical, right? So if I put the cup into the hat, of course, uh, the, sun, the, the cup doesn't lose its identity. That's obvious. When it's two physical things, each one takes up its own space. But even metaphysically, the classic example in Hasidus is a feeling that's born out of an idea. So you're feeling an attraction to something or a distance from something because logic tells you to feel that way or the human psyche <coughs> is bringing that up in you. If you could trace the feeling back to its source, in other words, follow the development, the feeling as it's being experienced is a heart energy, but it began as a mind energy. So if you can trace the feeling back to the way it was in the mind, an academic feeling, let's call it, the term that we use for that is mida haklula basechel. It's the emotion as it's subsumed or totally part of, intertwined with, with the seichel, with the, with the intellect. Yet, nobody will say that academic feelings are intellect. They're already leaning outside the world of intellect. So if a judge is uh, sitting on a case and he's 
going through this, the, the information that's going to dictate the way he's going to rule, there's a part of his intellect that's already um, emotive, leaning towards the right, leaning towards the left. So even as the practical application lies within the source, it has somewhat of an independence. It's only with light that it's totally united. And many have said that a better way to say light might be energy. In other words, the light as it's part of the sun, it loses the property of shining, of a ray of light. It's, it's completely sun. And that's why he uses the word totally, because it's, it's unique to light that it's a complete, a complete a harmony, a complete unison. So the Alter Rebbe says, that's the way we have to look at Hashem and his expressions. When we, ha- when we say Hashem emanated or brought forth character traits, we have to look at God, so to speak, as a luminary and the traits as lights. So that no matter how independent they get, and no matter how to the outside they might look like separate entities like us, we experience sunlight as a separate entity, in truth, if you can trace them back to their source and the way they are within their source, they're completely and wholly part of the identity of the source. So it doesn't give us much, but it gives us something to see how Hashem could be one with His character traits. Now, it's a simplified analogy, obviously. Sun and sunlight are actually tied up with each other. The sun's entire purpose is to bring forth light. The light recognizes that all it is is projecting its source. So when, when you deal with light and light sources, that's, that's, their, that's, their, uh, that's their job. That's what they're here for. Nobody would say that God's identity is the sum total of his ability to be a luminary. No, other way. Nobody would say that the sum total of God's identity is the fact that he is a luminary. He also gives forth light and expressions and energies and creates worlds. But his, his essence is so much beyond that that it wouldn't make sense to classify him as a sun to the light. It helps us, obviously, it helps us understand something about the relationship of God and his expressions. But it's not the be-all, end-all. But it's something. It's something. The Alter Rebbe, at the end of the chapter, notes the flip side of this, which is, if it's true that God's expressions are simply light, then how and when do they begin to assume their own identity? Sunlight only begins to assume its own identity as it exits the sun. But if these lights have never exited God's essence, when do they become separate? And to that, the Alter Rebbe says, it's a question of perspective. To God, they're complete oneness. To us, we identify them as descriptive terms of God's character because we are created and animated and led by different elements of God's character. It says in the Midrash that Hashem created the world with ten traits. 
his wisdom, his understanding, his knowledge, his kindness. And the way we understand that to mean is that every day of creation, a different element of God's character was manifest. On the first day, it was God's chesed, <laughs> kindness. That's why light was created. On the second day, it was God's gvura, division, judgment. That's why the first division happened on the Monday. The waters were split, the lower waters and the higher waters. On Tuesday, Tiferet, harmony, God's beauty was manifest, and that's why all the beautiful things grew on that day. Trees, grass, fruits. In fact, it doesn't say it in the Tanya, but there's a discourse from the Rebbe Rashab, the fifth Rebbe, where he says that you can see all of history, the 6,000 years of Jewish history, as each thousand years, each millennium, had a different element of God's character manifest. So the first thousand years, we say in the Midrash, God's chesed was manifest. It was before the giving of the Torah, and the way the world survived was simply by virtue of God's kindness. In the second thousand, second millennium, it was God's gevura. And that's why the highlight of that, of that millennium is the flood, destruction. The third millennia was God's tiferet. That's why the Torah was given during that, that period of thousand years. And so on and so forth. Each thousand years is like a day of creation. But those are all relative to us. It's the way we experience the different parts of God's expression. People have different tendencies. One guy is more of a kind disposition. One guy is kind of more of a strict disposition. One guy is more of a happy-go-lucky, peaceful disposition. One guy is the tough player, enduring disposition. One guy is the humble. One guy is the connector. Everyone has different uh, characters because they come from different elements in God's uh, character. But that's all from our perspective. From Hashem's perspective, it's complete achdut. Because He is the light source and they are His lights. And light in the light source is completely subsumed. But there's one observation on the, on the sixth day of creation thing. The Alter Rebbe says that because everything is intertwined in Kabbalah, there's no such thing as pure chesed. Chesed has to be mixed with all the other attributes. That's why on Sunday, there was also darkness. And division can never be pure division. There has to also be some kindness in the division, which is why the purpose of the division was to bring out the earth. So there was a kind element there. Everything always has hit kalalut is the word for that in Kabbalah. But nevertheless, that's, that's the thrust of, of, of this chapter. To bring out somewhat of a human illustration as to how we understand the relationship between God and His character. Now, like my teacher used to say, that's what the Alter Rebbe says. Now let me tell you what he's saying. You have, I always have what somebody says and then there's what they're saying. What is the, um, the, the, the underlying theme of the chapter? I'm going to give over a synopsis of a talk that was delivered by the Rebbe, um, probably one of the longest Fabrengans on record. He held a Fabrengan on the 19th of Kislev, which is a great holiday in Hasidic history, 1967, 8.30 p.m. to 5.30 a.m. <laughs> There's, there's, some, there's some video clips of it. No, we have the audio separately, 
and some video. It looks incredible. 15 or, f- or 16 talks and a mimer and a discourse. Uh, nine hours. And he, he gave a talk on chapter 10 of this book because remember a couple of weeks ago I talked about how Rabbi Weinberg used to give Tanya on the radio. He would prepare transcripts of his class. That's where they were holding. They were holding chapter 10 and he had some questions that he wrote into the Rebbe. So Rebbe gave a whole long discussion on it, continued it the next Shabbos and then ultimately edited it um, into a fascinating, really a dissertation, a beautiful Hasidic dissertation. But I'm just going to give over a piece of it. Obviously I'll paraphrase it. And uh, it really gets to the heart of what the Alter is communicating. What is the difference between a truth and a lie? What's a great way to describe the difference between a truth and a lie? So, yeah, a tr- something true and something false. You got something? What did I tell you? I, I did, actually, I did. Yeah. If you stop telling a lie, it disappears. Mm. And if you stop telling the truth, it's still there. Wow. Right? At least somebody remembers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> 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 I'm actually... <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very impressed. I'm very impressed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. It's, it's all empty now, though. I don't know. Sorry, dude. That's impressive. Wow. Yeah, this is chapter seven of book one. So we're talking almost a year ago, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Truth is the truth, even if nobody knows it. And even if nobody says it. A lie is, has substance only because people believe it. So you have thousands of people giving into it, millions of people buying into it. It doesn't change the fact that it's a lie. In fact, the only thing keeping the lie alive is that people are believing it. The second it's exposed, it vanishes. Truth is, the way the Rebbe said it then, when you expose a lie, two things happen. The lie vanishes, and because the contrast between truth and falsehood has been sharpened, everything connected to the truth gets elevated. So it has a double effect. The wrong totally goes away and the right becomes even more right. Now what I didn't tell you then and what I'm going to add now is the Hasidic terminology for this. The Hasidic terminology for this is the difference between bitul and yichud. Bitul means nullification. Yichud means harmony. Nullification Bitul says, you're valueless. Because you're a lie, because you aren't the truth, you don't exist. You have no identity. You have no self. You have no essence. You have no being. Like the literal word bitul means. You know, we do bitul on Pesach. We, are, we nullify our chametz. We declare it non-existent. Yichud, unity or harmony, says not you don't exist. To the contrary, it says you exist on the strength or with the properties of that which you are unified with. 
In other words, you become stronger, not weaker. Vitul would be like the lie dissipating. Yichud would be elevating the truth. Because you're connected to the truth, you become even stronger when you become harmonized with the truth. Um, I, I said in the beginning of the class, right, that the, that the two parts of book two of the Tanya could be defined as God is one with creation, God is one with himself. Those two onenesses, this tale of two unities, the difference between them is exactly that. The way that Tanya brings out God's oneness with the world is by stressing the weakness of the world. It can't exist on its own. It needs perpetual maintenance. Remember that? The letters have to constantly vivify it. If God wasn't saying every second let there be light, the world would disappear. The whole, the whole unity of creation and God hinges on highlighting the weakness of the world or the bitul of the world. But when it comes to God versus his own character, we use the other lingo, the lingo of yichud. We elevate God's traits and we say, because they're completely one with him, they function on his level. Let me say it maybe more, more, in a more practical sense. The world, as we experience it, ourselves and the universe entirety, we have a false sense of independence. We have a false sense of ego. We know that about ourselves. We feel that we came from ourselves. We feel that we're not dependent on anything else. We feel like we're self-sufficient. That false sense of independence, unfortunately, leads to a lot of negative things. All the evil that we see, all the bad that we experience comes from that. It comes from the fact that we're not in touch with the truth. But what if, what if we could see the truth? Or maybe I shouldn't say what if. But when Mashiach comes, which that's what happens. When Mashiach comes, the truth becomes revealed. God, God becomes revealed. What happens then? So the Bitul Yichud methodology says that all negative will disappear. All the lies will vanish. In other words, uh, selfish ego, evil, death. If you look in the, even in the prophets, the actual verses, the terms that they use for these things when Mashiach comes is actual disappearance. Death will be swallowed forever. I will take away the spirit of impurity from the land. Because that's what's going to happen to all that negative stuff. It's totally going to go away because the truth is exposed, the lie is exposed, it stops existing. But what's going to happen to all the elements of truth within reality? All the holiness contained within the Jew? All the transcendence, all the beauty, all the purity? Huh? It's going to be elevated. It's going to experience yichud. The negative parts of our character are going to completely go away. The positive parts are going to become heightened and more godly. I have to give a little cliffhanger because in chapter 12, mm-hmm. the last chapter, it comes out that even what seems to be the world and the physical part of the world also gets elevated. But for now, where we're at right now, 
anything associated with the physical, with the mundane, that goes away. The spiritual and the godly, that's eternal and that, and that gets elevated. So the Rebbe says, that's the point that the Alter Rebbe wants to bring out in this chapter. That as much as we've talked about God's oneness with creation, that would only lead you to a conclusion of the Bittol model. You, you, you could walk away with this impression of things that are one with God become weaker, become smaller, become more worthless. But by, the, by talking about God's unity with his own character traits, the connection between Hashem and his Sfirot, we get a window into the Yichud model. The model which says, if you're connected to that which is true, you become stronger because you're also true. Ever the practical man, the Rebbe always had to have you walk away with a, with a practical lesson. So he said, these two models, every Jew experiences every day. Because we have Torah and mitzvahs, the way we engage with the world can always be split up into two. Things that are holy, in the realm of holiness, and things that are not. Things that are mundane, that we, things that we do as, let's call it, things that we do as Jews, things that we do as humans. What, what is supposed to be our attitude to these types of things? So the Rebbe says, to your human part, you have to approach it with the Bittel methodology. And to your Jewish part, you have to approach with the Yichud methodology, which means the world, the mundane world, the part that's divorced from godliness, you have to see as valueless. On its own, non-entity. Only there as a means to an end to bring you closer to your mission as a Jew. So yes, you have to engage in eating, yes, you have to engage in sleeping, yes, you have to engage in business, and all those things. But the way you have to view them is they're bottle. They're non-entities. I use them only insofar as my neshama is concerned. And then it vanishes. Torah and mitzvahs, on the other hand, things that I do as a Jew, there, I don't view them as a means to an end. They are the end. Because they are what God wants from the world putting on tefillin, a davening experience, learning Torah, these are yichud experiences. These are experiences that bring us closer and make us more truthful. Because they're connected to God. Because, the way the Zohar says it, Torah and God are all one. The world is also one with God, but it's one with God in the way that denigrates it. Torah and mitzvahs are one with God in the way that elevates it. So, if we left it here, yeah. So if you come back in two weeks, you might hear a little different story. Yeah. Are you coming back? Are you coming back? Wow. Yeah. Yes, Listen, if, if you come back. I already bought the ticket for the whole season. So. <laughs> there you go. I'll just tie a bow on this. In 1959, in the summertime, there was a group of Hillel activists 
that came to visit the Rebbe. Very interesting. We have a very interesting records of these um, private audiences. They would come in, a group of them, in the 50s and the 60s, and it was like open forum, question answer. They would ask questions and the Rebbe would answer. Very fascinating because that's not typically the style which the Rebbe would engage. It was typically came out, addressed, gave the talk, and that, you know, we just accepted it. Here we have record of a discussion, and the Rebbe edited them. So they're down precise to the T. And uh, very interesting questions that, you know, regular Hasidim would never dare ask, but these people, they asked, and so because of that, we merited some, some, some great stuff. Like they once asked the Rebbe, is it true that you have superpowers? You know, how do you know better than the doctor, better than the, the lawyer? Yeah. To that, he said, uh, it's, it's, a, I'll just, it's an interesting answer. He said that um, it's not that I know better than the doctor, better than the lawyer. It's that the Torah is the blueprint of creation. Hmm. So would anybody say that a contractor knows how to build electricity better than the electrician or how to build the house better than the guy that's in construction? No, but he can read the blueprint. So he can tell everybody what their job is. So the Rebbe said, when somebody is connected to Torah on the level where he sees the blueprint, he can give the instructions. Fascinating. But uh, to our point, in 59, so I have it here, I just want to read it because it's, it's beautiful. They asked the Rebbe, they said, uh, please state your attitude towards devekut, attachment to the divine, ecstasy. We wanted to hear the Lubavitcher interpretation on Devekut. So listen to this. It's English. It's edited by the Rebbe in English. Every human being, because of his connection with God Almighty, has no limitation with respect to his possibilities. God's infinite, so we're infinite. Because he has not only his own energy, but also an open channel to receive additional energy from above. To have this channel open is called Devekut. That's attachment to the divine. You can be a very long distance from the powerhouse. You can become closer and closer to entering the powerhouse itself. And then you can become a part of this being we call God Almighty. That is the maximum of Devekut. But here's the punchline. It does not mean that the soul parts from the body because the body is also God's creation. The soul becomes not only closer and closer, but it becomes lost in divinity. And yet soon after that, he can eat his Shabbos meal and go to his business after the Shabbos ends with the recital of the Havdalah service. It's not like nirvana. Hinduism, it says. Mm. In Devekut, you have no independent existence. You are a part of God who permeates all your being with his divinity. It's not in hidden form, but functioning in your body just as your heart and leg are functioning. In other words, if I could say it, the Rebbe was addressing exactly this point. The closer you become to God, it's not the less you become, it's the more you become. Because the closer you are to the powerhouse, or when the channel is open to the powerhouse, there's a unity that you get that makes you as infinite as the infinite. Chaim. 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 Chaim.